Hi everybody, welcome back to Up to Some Good. The weather in London has been so great lately, and I've been spending lots of time outdoors. And hope that you're enjoying the summer or the winter wherever you are. My guest today is Kisum Chan. A UCL biomedical sciences student and co-founder of social enterprise Rice Inc. Originally from Hong Kong, Kisum grew up in Vietnam and Sri Lanka. And after graduating from university, Kisum intended to go down a more conventional career route and probably would have worked as a management consultant or an investment banker. But as luck would have it, his career took a different turn when he decided to join a business pitching competition with three other UCL teammates. The group ended up winning the world's largest student social enterprise competition, the Holt Prize, in 2018, which gained them one million US dollars of seed funding to launch their social enterprise idea. The theme of the Holt Prize that year was to harness the power of energy to transform millions of lives. At that time, Kisum recently became aware of the immense amount of food loss in agricultural supply chains. And he also found out that 70% of farmers live in poverty, while 30% of rice is wasted simply because farmers can't afford proper equipment. With a mission to lift Southeast Asian farmers out of poverty, Kisum and his teammates pitched their idea for Rice Inc. Their winning idea was to rent rice drying machines to farmers to help them decrease waste during the rice harvesting process. With the prize money, they embarked on a journey to interview rice farmers on the ground, as well as pitch feasible business models to professors, families, and friends multiple times before they had a social enterprise business model that they were happy with. Now, Rice Inc. has both a B2B channel, which provides rice dryers for farmers in multiple Asian countries, and a B2C channel, where harvested rice is directly sold to consumers through Rice Inc.'s platform in order to offer rice farmers a fairer price for their work. Their rice brand is called Patty which will be available in some restaurants in London over the next few months. I'm honestly so impressed by what Kisum has achieved at such a young age, and I'm so glad that he's able to speak to me today from Hong Kong. Hi, Kisum. Welcome to Up to Some Good. Thank Thanks you for so having much. me, Claudia. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I've just introduced a little bit about Rice Inc., but I'd love for you to start off with talking about your journey towards launching Rice Inc. and what first made you aware of the huge issue of food waste in the rice supply chain in Asia. Sure. So when my co-founders and I started Rice Inc. during my time in university around three years ago, it was really a response to a problem that we found out about that was happening in not just the rice industry, but the wider agricultural sector where we realized that a huge chunk of the food that we grow in terms of crops was being wasted during the process. And in the rice sector specifically, that's 30% of rice that's grown that goes to waste even before it gets to market. And to put that wastage into perspective, you could quite literally end world hunger almost twice over with that amount of just rice. And if you Wait, sorry, of- can you repeat that? So if 30% of rice wasn't wasted every year, then... Exactly. We, we can wow. end world hunger around 1.8 times, 1.7 times over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's not like the most... Uh, you don't have like a full nutrition profile with just rice, but it's definitely it definitely puts things into perspective. And for someone that ate rice every single day, when we found that out, it, it just blew our mind and to do something about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And I understand that you guys... When you launched Rice Inc., you were still a student and you did this because you wanted to enter, you entered a social innovation competition. So can you tell me more about your journey from just pitching the idea to presenting it and then becoming finalists? Sure. Yeah. So for some context, like you said, we took part in this competition, which challenged us 
to come up with a social enterprise that could do some good in the world. And that was during my second year of university in my undergraduate course when I was studying in uh, UCL over in London. And I was studying the biomedical sciences at the time, and I absolutely hated my course. And so what I was basically trying to do was I was trying to enter management consulting, trying to pivot my career into that instead of just spending all of my time at the labs, pipetting from one test tube to another. And so in order for me to have any chance of getting into management consulting, I had to enhance my CV. And so I, I took part in a bunch of case competitions and anything to do with sort of business I tried to actively take part in. So one of the competitions that I took part in was called the Health Prize. And at first glance, it was just like a casual sort of case competition. You pitch an idea to solve a sort of global problem. And then at the end, you maybe get a certificate, or at least that's what I thought. When I looked deeper into it, it was basically the, the largest social enterprise business case competition in the world for a sort of university student level. And at the very end, there would be a sort of like multiple rounds that you have to go through. And at the end, you'd get a prize of a million dollars in seed funding to go finance your venture that you're, you're basically pitching. Mm-hmm. And so when I took part in this competition, I, I didn't really have that expectation of us winning. I just wanted to win maybe one or two rounds get that on my CV, maybe get a management consulting internship uh, through it. But sort of as I went through this competition at every stage, it just sort of exposed me to this world of entrepreneurship, how you need to think like an entrepreneur to solve problems. Like what I'm trying to say is in sort of social entrepreneurship, what attracted me, you were basically coming up with the solution to not only where exactly, exactly. where, you, where you, you, you can get to... gain revenue back, but you're also, as much as you're challenging yourself, you're also solving a world issue. And I think that's the best when you're able to do that, like you use your own skills and, and strengths to develop something that can really give back. Exactly. And, and sort of the way the competition was structured as well, it, it sort of stage gated the, the sort of learning process, because at the time we were just a bunch of biomed students, sort of anything that we said or like pitched almost felt kind of out of reach at the stage that we were. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that, that I realized progressing through the competition was that that's all of the things that you think are sort of limiting you are literally just that. It's sort of mind blocks and like it's all about mindset. If you mm-hmm. believe that you can do it, that's sort of step one to, to contributing good in the world and at any scale. Mm-hmm. I love that. So you mentioned that none of you, none of you are inter- entrepreneurs because you're all biomedical students. So I was wondering when you finally won with that money, with that one million US dollars, how did you go about, you know, dividing the the money and and investing it towards your business as people who don't really have business experience? Sure. I mean, yeah, we personally didn't have too much business experience, but throughout the process, we had to, we did get a lot of help from mentors that helped sort of helped us with budgeting mm-hmm. uh, and allocating funds. And I mean, like the, the best way to learn is through sort of direct experience. The second best way to learn is through people that have that experience, right? Mm. And so we were pr- in a privileged situation where we had exposure and we had the sort of, we're able to build the networks with those relevant people and sort of like past Hull Prize winners as well. They helped us a lot in our process. Right, right. 
And would you be able to summarize a little bit about Rysync and Patty and what the mission is? Sure. So the mission at Rysync is sort of related to why we, we started Rysync. It was a response to the global problem of rice wastage, which is strongly linked to poverty in the industry, right? Mm-hmm. Around 70% of rice farmers in the world don't even earn their national minimum wage. And so right. because of that, there's a compounding problem where they can't afford the more efficient, the more modern technologies, all the way from seeds to better machinery to process the rice, to grow the rice, to waste less. And so this creates a vicious cycle where they're constantly in poverty. Mm-hmm. And so that, in essence, is the mission at Rice Inc. We want to empower smallholder farmers who grow most of our rice to escape poverty so that they can waste less and grow better rice. And so Patty, our rice brand, is an extension of that. We want to basically, what Patty is, is what Cafe Direct is to the world of coffee. Their mission at Cafe Direct, they were the pioneers of fair trade coffee in the UK. And our sort of missions are very much aligned. Rice Inc. is sort of the overarching organization that's trying to empower sort of rice farmers to escape poverty. Patty is the rice brand that sort of fits in that vision where we want to give consumers an option to also be part of that journey. And so for every bag of Patty rice that you get, you help empower farmers because we reinvest some of the profits to getting Mm -hmm. farmers better farming equipment. Right, right. And from what I want to understand, you have two sort of iterations of the business, which is firstly, you work B2B directly with farmers and you offer more advanced equipment that will help them with their process of rice farming, right? And these are rice drying machines. Can you tell me how like adding the rice drying machines to their process helps to empower them and also helps to improve the quality of the rice? For sure. So to understand the benefits of a machine rice dryer, we first need to start off with identifying, having a better understanding of where exactly the wastage happens in the rice industry. So from my stat earlier, 30% of rice is wasted. Within that 30%, you have a third of that wastage that's attributed to farmers not drying their rice properly right Mm -hmm. after you harvest the rice. And so that's rice drying is an essential part of that supply chain. And traditionally what farmers do is they harvest their rice, they lay it out on the fields or the sides of the roads mm-hmm. and let the sun do its thing. But obviously there are, sometimes the environment is not right for efficient drying. Sometimes it's monsoon season, right? And so what happens is because it's exposed to the elements, you get mold that starts growing. You get bacteria that starts growing. Rice gets wasted and just spoiled through that process. But right. at the same time, there's technologies that have existed for a while where you can literally just put that rice into a rice dryer that dries it 24 times faster. So instead mm-hmm. of two weeks, it's just a couple of hours to a higher quality because you can control the temperature and control the moisture content of the rice right? And it also uh, saves the farmer's time, right? Instead of having uh, to hire maybe laborers to scoop up the rice and spread it out, you can just in one machine. But the only barrier 
for farmers to using this technology is financial access. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of where we want to innovate. And so what we do at RiceSync is we provide price drying rental service for farmers. Mm-hmm. So instead mm-hmm. of having to save up 20 years the of their machine. income, exactly. We rent it out and we sort of coordinate and aggregate for farmers in, in regions where that community structure to organize themselves might not be there. Mm-hmm. And so we go into farms, we work with our partners to identify potentially high impact areas where our drivers can, can impact the farmers. And we work with local manufacturers to place the dryer down and then the farmers can now use that dryer. Mm-hmm. One of my sort of favorite stories from when we were just starting out RiceSync was right after we won the uh, Hulk Prize and, and got the million dollars. One of our pilot sites, my co-founder was visiting Myanmar where we were piloting our technology. And when we were doing a field visit to one of our sites, there was a woman that had been waiting for him since like 5 a.m. or something. And he was there at around 8.30. And so when they sort of asked her why she was waiting there, it turned out that she wanted to personally thank whoever had sort of installed the machine there. Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah, her background was that she was a single mom. She had three kids, right? And it just so happened that year, her rice was just too wet to Mm. not even just sun dry. Mm -hmm. And that would have meant six months of income Mm. just Mm -hmm. wasted. Yeah. And so it's like stories like that, that sort of basically made me pivot into and into sort of doing this uh, enterprise. Oh, yeah, that's really heartwarming. And I'm sure there are many more stories like that where you really, because you installed machines there, it really empowered the farmers and really helped them improve their quality of life as well. Going back to your point about how the rice drying technology actually already existed and it's open source, right? But it's just that farmers can't really afford to buy it. I was just wondering, with all the farmers that you work with, are they provided with any, say, government subsidies, local subsidies that can really help them? Or from what you know, farmers aren't really financially supported in the countries that you're working working with? Sure. What what you brought up is like a really good point. In some places where the rice industry is more developed, for Mm. example, in Thailand Mm -hmm. um, and Vietnam's approaching the stage, there's a lot of government help because it's such a cash crop for them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like one of their main agricultural exports and it contributes a significant portion of their GDP. Mm-hmm. But for other places, for example, one of the places we worked with in the early days was Myanmar. The farmers there aren't supported as, at all, given their sort of uh, historic sort of and now current political situation. What we've seen on the ground is that they're, I guess, progression or advancement in terms of technologies and policy is is really far behind. And Myanmar is not the only only place. Malaysia is also another place and some parts of Africa and India as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's these sort of communities where the policy might not be as good, the access to technologies might not be as good, which sort of provide opportunities for sort of technologies like this to to, to get installed in in places like some part most parts of Thailand, there's sort of heavy investments in, in large scale infrastructure, right? But that presents another problem where all of the farmers are now having to sell to large corporations who dictate the price. Right? Okay. Yeah. Right. So and these large cor- corporations would lower the price or or suppress the price that they they 
farmers originally want to to sell the rice for to justify you know their collaboration yeah i mean it's it's basically arbitrage right 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 the main issue lies in there's like a very stark imbalance in in power and rice is not the only industry where this happens Mm, of course the traders Mm. of any sort of agricultural commodity usually have way more power because they have they control that connection to consumers right the buyers of the product Mm, mm. Uh, and without them the farmers would have no one to sell to Right. And so sort of like where Patty falls in is like we provide another route to market, which we want to have it as more fair and equitable for the hard work that farmers do put in. And just going back to the point about sort of, I guess, like control, it's like they do suppress the price. But what is more concerning is that even if the price increases and during times when sort of supply is low, Mm -hmm. the farmers don't really get a cut from that at all. Mm. They just sell to the the millers or whoever down the line at whatever that price is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So whether the price is high, if the price goes higher, there's no mechanism to reward the farmers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I want to move, before talking a bit more about Patty, I want to talk a bit more about how you work with the farmers actually on the ground, because even though Rysink offers, you know, rice drying machines, but that that's still the rental price is still something they have to pay for right so yeah. in order for them to understand the benefits of really using the machine maybe instead of using the conventional farming methods is there a lot of education that needs to be involved or actually the farmers you work with already know that using technology is better it's just that they can't afford it sure so that's like the golden question that every sort of agricultural company working with farmers is trying to answer how can we especially if it's a new one. So mm-hmm. the benefit for our technology is that there are already cases where there are maybe sort of mega farms or like larger farmers that are not a, that are more well off already using the technology, but because they have such a large volume of rice that they need to dry themselves, they, they can't sort of give it out to people, right? And so basically farmers already know of this technology, maybe from their friends who have seen farms in other countries as well, where they're using this technology, they're getting the benefits of it, and they're like seeing as believing, right, to them. And right. so there wasn't as much sort of persuasion required in, in these sort of farmers that we work with for this specific technology. But at the same time, the model that we were using was also relatively new to them. And so that required a bit of strategic placements of our pilot sites. We needed to really identify the attributes of the farmers that would be keen to use our new service, right? And so that included, so there's like a rubric in, in the industry that you can use to identify these types of farmers, but it's, it's you can sort of identify these maybe through a proxy method by seeing, oh, have what was their receptiveness through previous technological introductions? Were they the first movers? Were they okay. sort of like the innovators in their circle? And we right. really put an effort to identify these key figures in farming communities that can mm-hmm. then compound the sort of awareness and, and therefore comfortableness for the farmers to use it. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. So in terms of 
communication and doing on the ground research was that difficult because i imagine in some farming communities the digital infrastructure for instance might not be as great like did you really have to travel to you know myanmar or the other countries that you you worked with in order to do the research yes so like the best way is to actually interview the farmers firsthand that's what we did and i i really see no alternative to that like they have 4g that they can access and we can like hop onto like Facebook Messenger video call, for example, but it's it's sort of not the same, and and yeah. there's a bit of it's not it's I would say it's like twenty percent as effective as like mm-hmm. going to them and actually seeing them. Yeah, and and so there's really no substitute. But we were so lucky to have been able to work with some of the leaders in rights research. There's this uh, organization called the International Rights Research Institute. That we uh, got in touch with, and then they had projects on the ground where they were basically uh, doing what we were trying to do, which was introducing new technology to market. And they already had villages that we could leverage to introduce what we were trying to do as well. And so I think it's so important to leverage the existing, I guess, pathways and mm-hmm. routes to market through organ through either sort of NGOs or or sort of research organizations. Hmm. Right. Okay. And how long was this whole process? Because I imagine if you had to really conduct the research directly with the farmers themselves, and there are so many farms that you work with as well as a few different countries, was this quite an extended process before you were really able to launch Rice Inc? Yeah. So I mean, like the process we went, like the ideation of it was the fastest. Like you said, the actual execution and testing of our pilot project was super. Do for long-winded because it involved talking mm. to people in person uh, and sort of setting up excursions to to the fields and and to actually do it face-to-face interviews. And I mean, like the interview process, I remember sort of thing with the farmers, like we would do individual interviews and then sort of focus groups, and we would so, sort of slowly scale out the amount right. of people that we were talking to. And there's there's really no substitute. To be mm-hmm. honest, and and that whole process took, I would say, like months before we we sort of finally were able to drill down on like a viable idea that we were comfortable enough investing money and actually installing assets to mm-hmm. to sort of execute. And during um, that process, were you also going back and forth from from London to you know the the Asian countries, or were you based there for a while? Yeah. So. In terms of timeline, the the competition, the first round of the competition started. I think it was like early December, mm-hmm. right? And then it was a couple months after. It was actually like right after summer started, where we had a good enough idea on paper that、mm. we could actually sort of go over and 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 test in in Myanmar, where our first pilot was. And yeah, and and so so we did have that summer break. So instead of a management consulting internship, we that that was our Our internship and,、okay. and for sure, there's so much learning that. Yeah, but in a way that you really enjoy. Yeah, exactly. I mean,、yeah. I wouldn't have substituted that、uh, for anything else in the world. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so now I want to talk a little bit more about your rice brand, Patty. I love the name; it's really cute, and I also really like the branding actually. So, Patty is currently only available in the UK, right? So you only deliver in the UK. We also have deliveries available in Malaysia. Oh, okay, okay, and from what I understand, Patty is a a brand that helps to empower farmers by 
directly sourcing the rice from them and then selling to consumers. So, so then that skips all the people in between, and you guys would be the ones to negotiate it with, you know, the the consumers. Can you tell me more about like the conventional supply chain compared to the supply chain that Patty offers? Sure. So, our conventional, like the conventional supply chain, which most、uh, rice companies go through, is you have. Basically, and and to be honest, this is like the same for、uh, like all agricultural commodities, whether it's coffee, chocolate, like other grains, vegetables. There's there's basically layers of or massive vertically integrated sort of like export other rice companies, right?、Mm. So the the first kind where you have layers of middlemen, not just between the mills and the consumers, but also which exist in the form of rice traders. So、mm-hmm. basically, there's a couple of people that slowly aggregate and, and and tack on percentages of the final price of the rice, right?、Mm-hmm. And so that sort of increases the price of rice. And and but at the same time, none of that is really going to farmers, right? So and on the other hand. What you have is massive rice companies that control from start to finish, and with all that control, there's really no power for the farmers to negotiate on price.、Mm-hmm. So whether the price goes up, like, and, and the farmers don't get any cut of that, and sometimes when the far the prices of rice goes down, that sort of negotiating power on the big rice company side to say, sorry, rice rice market isn't sort of like this half a year. We're gonna have to give you a lower price for your rice, and that sort of Price、um, fluctuation is sort of like not, not, not good for the farmers, of course. And and yeah, so what we want to build at Patty is to have sort of a more direct relationship with farmers, where we can not only offer them a higher price because of fewer middlemen and fewer traders that aren't really adding much more value into the system, and that includes sort of working really hard on our end to to get these relationships as、mm-hmm. close to source as possible. And on the other hand, is to create a supply chain that actually rewards farmers fairly for the hard work that they do. And to put that into perspective, in terms of the final sort of retail price of the rice, farmers maybe get less than five percent of the total price, which is、right. even less than coffee, which is、yeah. closer to ten percent.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 for me personally, like just comparing the scale of the industry, it's it's sort of jarring that I guess like coffee was. Was more prioritized in in that sense because literally half the world eats eats rice basically yeah,、exactly. on a daily, right?、Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's just that's just pretty heartbreaking, really, to be honest. To realize that the rice that we eat pretty much every day, the actual people who grow it only get five percent or less. <clears throat> yeah, and and is that the same in all the countries? Because, for instance, you mentioned just now that places like Thailand, they invest more in their rice farmers because. Rice is such an important important commodity, but would you say the farmers, a lot of farmers, still remain in pov in poverty despite that? Yeah, I mean, seventy percent、mm-hmm. is it, like seventy percent of farmers earn less、mm-hmm. than their national minimum wage, right? Right, and right. that's compared to their national wherever、mm-hmm. they are.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have rice from the U.S. You have rice from Australia, where sort of farmers are are sort of more well off. They're more mechanized in that sense, but they represent much small like. The majority of rice, over sixty percent of rice, is grown in Asia, Southeast Asia,、mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Where where that sort of poverty number and and low income number is 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 from. 
Right. Okay. But it's interesting because if this is such a big issue, like, do you know of any players in the industry similar to what Rising is doing that are trying to really sort of help the the farmers with this issue of cutting some middlemen and directly sourcing, directly connecting them with the consumers? Or are you guys one of the first to innovate? I think, so the existing strategy from like the larger players, so where where they have a vertically integrated supply chain, where that company basically controls all of the assets required in rice production, and mm-hmm. they just buy raw patty rice from farmers. That's one way of technically reducing this wastage, but it's not really helping the poverty numbers, mm-hmm. right? Because so, the farmers mm-hmm. are forced to sell to basically one player that's mm-hmm. offering them a price or so they either sell or or, or get deeper into poverty basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that's one strategy that's employed another strategy and, and so what they usually do is sort of like contract farming where they sort of pre-purchase or like have a guarantee price for the rice but that's usually not in the favor of farmers in terms of it, it's safety for the farmers but it's not really like a fit like a fair price mm, okay so at least they know they can sell the rice but it's not still not a fair price yeah so so in terms of the rice farming industry there's no such thing or anything similar as fair trade like there is in chocolate and coffee i mean there like, is fair trade does is there is fair like, trade certification in rice but it's just yeah, not as just prom- not as um, like prominent. prominent oh i see yeah. i see okay yeah. okay right um, i mean like if you go to your local tesco's like do you, have you seen a rice sort of um, yeah, exactly. That has a fair trade logo. Yeah, exactly. Like I just don't really feel like that's common in rice. I I don't know if fair trade like the organization works a lot with rice farmers. Yeah. But if I mean if they don't, I also don't really understand why. Is there a difference? I mean, you also with coffee and chocolate, it's pretty similar, right? Like it's also working with farmers to to give them a fair price. So why is it that? I mean, I, this is a question that maybe you, you also want to know about, but I'm just curious about why why it is that with rice farmers, there's less. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the problem yeah, that we're yeah. trying to solve. And part of that is, well, from our perspective, so a lot of people, at least majority, perceive rice to just be rice, right? But there are technically several grades to rice. There's low-quality rice, medium-quality rice, high-quality rice, if you want to put it in arbitrary categories because every sub variety of rice for example basmati jasmine there's there's sort of different grading and different quality standards i can't believe i know that <laughs> i would not have imagined yeah that, yeah um, i didn't know that that sort of deep into rice if you asked me three years ago but anyways i think there's a piece about for example the way this fair trade coffee movement started was really when they started sub-segmentation of the different coffee beans, right? They they suddenly formed this sort of premium coffee bean variety where they sort of hand process everything. So it's more, it tastes better and whatnot. So there was that quality piece that sort of benefited the customers. The customers were getting better quality, better mm-hmm. tasting, right? Mm-hmm. And they leveraged that to basically create a whole niche that slowly grew uh, and became trendy to what is now the sort of fair trade coffee industry right Mm -hmm. and that's where rice is it's sort of like at the very early stages but I think so that's what we're working on and it's a combination of supply chain innovation 
where we're going closer to the farmers and really selecting and handpicking the mills and the farms that we work with. And it's also half of it is like a marketing piece and being able to communicate that effectively to consumers that not only is there this issue that's prevalent in the industry, but there's also a benefit that you get directly as a customer mm-hmm. for fair trade or like direct trade or impact trade vice, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, this is this is actually something I want to move on to next, which is how do you like what ways do you use to communicate to the consumers the importance of like working with or buying sourcing from a company like Patty in order to really help the farmers lift them out of poverty? Because I feel like especially with, I guess, Asians who are so used to buying rice day to day, it almost becomes a habit. Like I'm just going to go buy that brand of rice without even thinking about where it comes from. Where do you step in from there and, and how do you really educate and um, inform them about the issues that are so prevalent? Sure. Well, it's all about getting that very message out to people, right? And with any means possible. And so that's sort of really working uh, on our marketing and, and the branding of our product. That's like half the piece. But just like how, how sort of that, I guess, consumers are more conscious than ever before about what are the products they're uh, sort of buying and where they're choosing. It's sort of like the same same reason why people might buy organic products over normal products. The same reason why you'd pick the fair trade bananas in Sainsbury's over the normal bananas mm-hmm. in Sainsbury's. Yeah. Uh, it's that exact piece of, of making it well known. And fair trade is one route. To be honest, we, we're, we're still sort of shaky on that. We, we don't know if that's the best route in terms of rights to go through like the fair trade brand. But that's definitely one way of operating and, and getting the, the, I guess, highlighting the issues that are happening in the industry, but at mm-hmm. the same time, creating a compelling uh, value proposition for consumers to purchase not only a product that does good, but a product that is fundamentally better for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And in terms of what you mentioned about conscious consumers, like I think nowadays packaging is also quite important. And not only because visually it's important to be able to draw their attention but also a lot of consumers will look at packaging and expect there to be some impact labeling to see you know like where the product comes from and what are the carbon footprints of the product and I've noticed that I mean even though I I haven't seen a real physical patty pack of rice yet I know that there's text there which which says that it offsets carbon and patty rice is actually carbon neutral so can you tell me a bit more about that and how and what carbon offsetting projects you actually are involved in for sure. So in terms of, so there's two pieces to that. Mm. One piece is the rice itself mm-hmm. and the other piece is the packaging. In terms of the rice itself, it really ties into the impact work that we do with farmers in terms of deploying technologies that reduce wastage in the supply chain. And so that 30% of 30%, which is uh, 10% in total in terms of rice that would otherwise be wasted in, in, in during rice production, that is now saved just by farmers using our technology, right? And so that rice, we basically count as now being saved, whose resources would otherwise... And the resources will also emit some sort of emissions. Exactly, for rice, which is like the main one. And so we have like a one-to-one offset for all of the patty rice that you buy. Every grain that you buy from our product, we count towards every grain that we save. So we match Mm. in that sense. And in terms of packaging, we're super excited to be working with Repurpose Global, which is basically funding projects that save 
or help with packaging recovery and packaging wastage. And so we basically offset the same amount of packaging, not just in our physical products, but all throughout our supply chain. And it could be, that could involve like tape that we use and, and all sorts of different plastics that we use in our supply chain. We offset via repurpose global and all of their plastic neutral activities. All right. So you're, so basically you, you mean you invest in repurpose global who are doing a lot of activities to reduce. Yeah. So, so basically they're an organization that does two main activities. One is they have sites around the world. The Mm -hmm. one we want to invest in is Indonesia, where they're basically helping with the recycling of plastics. Oh, I see. Uh, okay, okay. Plastic collections. Yeah, yeah. And other, they also fund, use the money to fund some really cool sort of startups that are basically creating new ways to sort of reuse that plastics and, mm-hmm. and boost plastic recovery. Okay, right, right. Okay, I love that. So that's Repurpose Global. Okay, yeah. I'll add that. I'll but, add that in the links below. Yeah, but what we want to eventually move towards is having sort of fully biodegradable plastics, possible plastics in our products, but. Right now, at the scale at which we're at, the unit economics just don't make sense. Mm-hmm. So right um, now, the the packaging is not is not uh, it's recyclable. It is recyclable. Yeah. Okay. And do you currently stock in any supermarkets, or is it only available online? It's uh, available online, and we have a couple stores that do stock us, and we have a couple of restaurants in that are we're gonna mm-hmm. announce soon. In terms, is this of in London? Will be. Yeah, this is in London. Oh, exciting. Yeah, let me know yeah, which yeah. restaurants. I will for definitely sure, go sure. try it out. And I also want to ask a bit more about your social enterprise business model, because like what you mentioned, there are multiple factors you have to consider in terms of, say, renting the rice drying machines to the farmers, as well as making sure you empower the farmers by paying them fairly. But all of those are costs that you will have to account for as on top of you know the, the normal business costs. And I'm just wondering how your, the model works in a way that is sustainable. Sure. Well, like the the main reason why our business exists, uh, or at least why Paddy exists, relies on the fact that we have a social enterprise business model. And whether like some might just see it as like if you're a business person, you might just see it as like a marketing cost kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it goes hand in hand with the, the way we sell rice is basically by selling rice that does better for the world. And so it's like the margins are definitely smaller. Uh, and that applies for any social enterprise or B Corp company out there. But we think that this is the future of business, right? Mm-hmm. A more equitable, more fair business model for everyone involved uh, and cutting out and weeding out, I guess, the members that aren't necessarily contributing much more to the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Okay. And are there any trends in the agritech industry which excite you? Yeah, I mean... The main two that come to mind are, there's, actually there's three. The first is overall mechanization of smallholder farmers, especially. There's been so much innovation in building technologies that not just work on an industrial scale where you have mega rice dryers, which large rice companies use, but you also have innovation on a farm level where communities of farmers can now have access to a small scale rice dryer that mm-hmm. uh, didn't have that wasn't a thing maybe like 10, 20 years ago. Isn't right? isn't so, that what Rice Inc. is doing, which is offering offering rice dryers to communities of farmers? Exactly. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. so we're moving towards that uh, mechanization trend. So this was just one example, mm-hmm. right? There's been so much innovation in terms of like genetically modifications of rice, for example. There's a lot of work being done to ensure that uh, the rice that we grow is more climate change resilient. It's mm-hmm. more resilient to pests. So some of the other wastage within that 30% can be reduced as well. So yeah, I guess like bioengineering, that's a really exciting field. There's another field in the rice industry and wider agriculture where they're coming up with solutions to harness the power of the byproducts during production of rice. So for example, the husk in which rice, which sort of encapsulates the rice. That That gets wasted, right? Normally. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, some farmers use that as like animal feed, but mm. it's not the best animal feed either. So it's just like a sort of step. But some people are working on ways to convert extract silicone from those rice husks mm-hmm. uh, for it to be used in computer chips. Oh my uh, God, amazing. Yeah, yeah. That is, like, wow, that's a, that's very innovative. Yeah, and, and the final sort of thing is it's, it's tough to do with digitization of farmers, but for smallholder farmers, it's a bit more difficult because they're, I guess, like in Southeast Asia, their their sort of digital literacy rate is still lagging behind. Less so the case in China, actually. Chinese, like mainland Chinese farmers are, are really on it with like the whole digitization. There's been so much uh, innovation going on in there. But that's sort of like a special mm-hmm. economic um, right. zone, which, which enables that kind of tech advancement. Yeah. So part of the barrier i guess is is the the illiteracy issue with farmers so they they don't well they either they don't know how to use the technology or they're not even aware of it and that's where i guess the education comes in a little bit right exactly so for example most of the farmers that we work with in myanmar they have smartphones and everything and in fact most farmers in the area did but their sort of perspective on what a smartphone is is facebook Facebook is their smartphone. Like mm-hmm. they literally just use Facebook and, and chat with friends. And that's that's literally all they use their, their phones for. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So I don't know. Do you, when you say when you're in Hong Kong or in London and doing research, have you actually tried to chat with any of the farmers on Facebook? Yeah. So, I mean, when COVID hit that we, we sort of weren't able to do our routine investigations and like research on the field. And so what we had to do was schedule like Facebook video calls with them. That's how we sort of <laughs> That's interacted. really funny, right? Yeah, and, okay. and you'd have like the farmer, we'd be interviewing him, he'd be sitting on his, like near his field and you, there'd be like random cows walking behind him <laughs> and like coming to him. That sounds fun so though. really funny. Such a unique experience. Yeah, at the same time, it was like, you'd have, like so many tech issues getting connected with them as well and but at the same time what we found out was instead of reaching out to the farmers themselves and getting them to go on the calls we found have or like connecting with their kids to get Mm. their oh that's parents was so much easier yes yeah oh yeah that's definitely a good a good way to agriculture is sort of one of i would say one of the key elements if you really want to advance and catalyze the transformation of the agriculture sector and towards more, being more mechanized and more digitized mm. because they have the digital literacy required for mm. rapid innovation. And so I guess one of the key challenges of the rice industry, and this was like a theme that was talked about during like the 
there's this international rice congress which is like the olympics <laughs> for the rice industry that happens every okay. four years okay that's interesting so, olympics so what what is the event so, what do they do yeah they, they basically talk about anything to do with rice whether it's innovation in terms of seeds innovations in terms of okay. infrastructure fertilizer uh, but the participants would be pe- like more researchers or more uh, and experts in the industry instead of farmers right or would farmers also participate in this I think there were very little farmers, if any. Right, right. That's fascinating. Uh, there might have been, like, yeah. but but it just shows, like, the imbalance, right? And then yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, so um, you have researchers, you have massive conglomerates, you have, like, people like Kellogg's over there as well. When the people you know, that you massive. really need to, you know, the people who really can give you inspiration are the people who are, like are not even there, yeah. which doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of problems and, yeah, and yeah. I, yeah, so, I'm pretty sure this happens in, in every industry as well, mm-hmm. in every agriculture industry. Yeah. So just going back to a little bit about your personal experience as a social entrepreneur and starting Rice Inc., I was yeah. just wondering what was the most challenging part of launching Rice Inc. for you? I think the most challenging part was actually being in the right frame of mind and having the right mindset towards entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and to be honest, like social entrepreneurship is, is basically the same. It's just like the types of problems that you're solving is specific to social causes uh, rather than maybe not mm. a social cause, I guess. But the challenges and the frameworks that you use are very much the same. And being able to think in like the right way and, and using the right frameworks, entrepreneurship frameworks was pretty challenging given our background. Like we, we basically, have, like I remember the first, like four months that we were pitching our ideas like everyone was basically like that that won't work why are you doing it like this that won't work this won't Mm, work and mm -hmm, it was basically rejection mm -hmm. upon rejection upon rejection until after a while we started pitching in competitions where we'd get roasted by judges but after a while there was a turning point where we realized that we got an insight as to how entrepreneurs really thought and that's when we framed things in a different way and thought about problems in a different way. And that was really the clicking point where you realize we finally got a hang of it. It was just like starting any new skill or hobby. Mm. Um, so it's, it's like say, approaching it in a different angle, like approaching the issue or telling the story in an angle that maybe entrepreneurs would, would tell the story in. Exactly. I yeah. mean, so for example, for us in like, like an early example was, before the first round, before the first pitch for anything to do with rising, we were trying to come up with an idea for the competition, right? To to solve like a global problem. And then we had basically a case book, which outlined some of the global problems. And what we wanted to do was we just thought of, started thinking about crazy ideas that would sound cool. And we would sort of mold that solution to fit a problem, right? Mm, okay. So that's basically entrepreneurship 101, where you start off with the problem and try to create a solution that that's that fits the problem right? and so just like those that that was more of an obvious one where and it's the compounding all of those learnings to have like a proper entrepreneurial mindset mm-hmm. okay okay right yeah. that was sort of the biggest thing that that or like the biggest challenge that i faced but once you overcome that after multiple failures and multiple rejections that sort of when it, I think, gets more fun because you're seeing everything as a solvable problem that that just requires the right resources, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Were there any resources or platforms that you used during the process that you found particularly useful for, for say, a person like you who didn't really understand much about social entrepreneurship? Sure. I would say, I mean, it depends on, on what you have uh, available to you. Everyone's contexts are different. I was lucky to have like professors in business, which we could reach out to at, at the university that I was in that basically shat on our business. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they didn't believe in the mission. No, the... no. <laughs> I remember my business, prof- I took a business module in second year and he was like, this will never work. <laughs> he straight up said that. But, but then, was like, that was what was... you presented basically rising as it is now? Was it something different or... Fundamentally, no. But okay. some people, like, but but there was like no hope in, in sort of us executing on it. Right. Right. And to be honest, I would have believed him. And but like that's not really, I guess, the main reason. Like they weren't trying to be douchebags or anything to sort of that's your business. Like like the business world is difficult, right? If your product doesn't work, if your solution doesn't work, mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. just gonna get flat out rejection. And what they're trying to do is help prime and innovate on a theoretical level first to get you and your business or your idea in a state that's ready for the real world. And like when we pitched it, I guess we weren't ready, mm. right? The, the point being is to leverage the environment that you have. If you're in a university, if you have a business faculty in your university, definitely leverage the professors or lecturers over there. Join as many competitions as possible pertaining to your business. For example, in the early days, the way we innovated and iterated on our business was by pitching our idea to as many people as possible, uh, to as many friends as possible, and to as many and mm-hmm. to test those refinements mm-hmm. through our business mm-hmm. plan on through minor competitions. For example, if you're in London, there's and in a London university, there's this one called UniVenture where we raised like ten thousand, I think ten thousand pounds, and that basically we we used to fund our pilot project. Right? Mm-hmm. There are so many opportunities that extend beyond just, I guess, food, agriculture-related businesses. Mm-hmm. There's competitions in every sector or industry that you're trying to work on, especially okay. tech, right? Yeah. And so definitely leverage those either to, if you're confident and that you have like a good product for like the final prize, or at the very least, what you get is access to the networks of judges that are, chances are going to be industry leaders, right? Mm-hmm. Or like at least experts in the field that you can say and reach out to and say, hey, thank you so much for judging. Like, we'd really like to find out some more feedback or like what you thought of our business. Right. Maybe schedule a 15, 20 minute call. And you compound yeah. that type of feedback from industry leaders. And what you get is hopefully mm-hmm. innovation and, and you're hopefully in a better position. Right. So what I hear is that really make use of all the opportunities around you from people and friends that you mm-hmm. can talk to about your business to see, you know, potential consumer feedback to maybe minor, smaller competitions or, or the professors around you that can really give you useful advice on your product yeah. or on yeah, your, or in your pilot. And so what was the most, well okay. Okay. Innovation centers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what was the most useful piece of advice you would say that you were given during this whole process? Thinking deeply for this one. It depends on the person, but for me, the biggest advice that I've gotten doesn't really have to do with the skills. Mm-hmm. That you mm-hmm. for entrepreneurship, yeah, it can, it it's also more about be, the mindset, you know, mindset that yes. you have, and it basically has to do with just following your heart on, on mm-hmm. what you want to mm-hmm. do. And for me, for a long time, I've been juggling between like diving into entrepreneurship 
or going through like the normal, I guess, management trainee program and like normal corporate path, mm. right? So biomedical um, sciences is not something you you would ever actually go into because that's uh, that's what your degree is, right? Un- unless I'm in a, a interview to get into a pharmaceutical company, I don't think I'm ever going to use that degree. Oh, I see. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the context for that was basically I wanted to be a doctor. Mm. Or I thought I wanted to be a doctor, but I two weeks in, I just realized it was not for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so going back yeah, to the piece I, of advice, it would be to follow your heart and yeah, to follow your heart and like your true heart, not what society expects of you, mm-hmm. what you think society expects of you. And it's super scary. Mm-hmm. I've been in that exact same situation, but looking back, like in the past couple of years. What I realized was I never felt more sort of like free and like never felt more fulfilled doing what I do. It was like scary in the first couple months, on uh, the first couple, first maybe year. But then, yeah, I see my friends hating their corporate jobs, and I was basically going to be in that exact same position. But obviously, it needs to make financial operational sense for your life as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that you went ahead and and continue to pursue Rising, and I'm really excited to see it grow. So now I want to ask you some up to some good questions. So what was the best investment you made over the past year? And this can be something that is for yourself or for your business. Sure. I would say flat out getting a therapist. Yeah, I feel like mental health and it, it's not uh, specifically pertaining to entrepreneurship. Although there were a couple of traumatic events that were unresolved in terms of my entrepreneurship journey that my therapist helped out with or a counseling mm. journal helped out with. Getting professional help in that sense, I think, is for everyone. I recommend it for everyone, whether that. or not you think you're going through something right now and that you think mm-hmm. you need help. Even if you don't think you're going through something, the least you can benefit is still, I guess, like a better understanding about how you as a person operate and raise your self-awareness, which I think is a key life skill in any context and being able to know yourself. And I think that sort of paid so many dividends forwards in terms of my professional life and setting up rising and my personal life in terms of just enjoying mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the journey I love that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think in Hong Kong, especially, it's still a little bit stigmatized. And I don't know that many people who work with therapists on a consistent basis but this is something I also want to do myself because not what you said whatever stage of life you're in having a therapist there to really help you understand more about yourself and how you think will always pay dividends in every single area of your life for sure yeah 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 okay so second question is if I give you a million US dollars what would you do with it which you were already given actually Um, (laughs) is that on top of the if if you were given another a million US dollars that's a good question that's probably like start another company uh, or like another enterprise, maybe in a different industry. I think probably, yeah, it'll probably go towards my next company. I think there'll probably be something to do with tech. There's massive problems and therefore opportunities in cr- reducing that digital literacy rate in farmers. And But that trend is just going to go mm-hmm. upwards in terms of increasing farmer literacy. And at a certain point, that's going to present opportunities and a good timing to, I guess, introduce digital solutions that can catalyze, I guess, food production, mm. and which is sort of one of the key global challenges for the whole world, right? It, By 2030, mm. we're not going to have enough food, food insecurity. Uh, for everyone mm. at the rate that we're going. 
So yeah, I mean, okay, probably so maybe like an e-commerce problem yeah. for farmers. Yeah. Something okay, like that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the timing isn't right. Now, okay, and can you tell me about an individual or business that you think has been up to some good lately? There's so many. Is there one that particularly, I don't know, their maybe their mission particularly resonates with you, or what they're doing you think should really be highlighted? I think Repurpose Global was really one that stood out for me. That's for sure one. Like it solved a business need that I didn't know. Like there were so many other businesses that were also in our position, which required a solution such as theirs. So. That's definitely one for the other business, I guess, like entrepreneurs that are also having brands don't exactly have the unit economics or capabilities of going sort of full on biodegradable, but at, still at the same time want to contribute, decrease their mm-hmm. foot, yeah, footprint. Mm-hmm. So that's one that I want to highlight. I think, oh, and of course, David Young is superstar in mm-hmm. the world of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look up to him Agree. Uh, a lot. Me yeah. too. And also one other one, which is also a Health Prize, ex-Health Prize winner, is Aspire Food Group that's championing the consumption and production of edible insects. Oh, okay. This is Aspire Food Group. Okay. And finally, what do you like doing when you're when you feel up to no good? Is there anything you like to indulge in? I think for me, it would be a split between tennis. I love tennis. I've mm. recently gotten back into it and it's such a like I just find so much enjoyment from it. And the second was I've been going to the beach a lot leveraging the mm. fact that Hong Kong summer in Hong Kong is so good and you don't necessarily get the same weather in, in London. London. Those are my guilty pleasures right now. Mm. <laughs> Last question for you specific to you because you have a company that sells rice. What is mm-hmm. your favorite rice related dish? I would say fried rice. Just because of the versatility mm. of it, you can basically make like an infinite variation. And that was literally what I survived on during university. Yeah. It was so and what do you put? Make. What's your favorite type of fried rice? Like, I think my favorite type was is still super basic. You have your rice, you have your minced pork or beef, and then you have spinach, spring onions is a must, and an egg. And basically mixing that all up. But it's it's less about the ingredients, I feel, <laughs> yeah, and more yeah. about the wok hay, you know? Oh, I thought you were going to say it's more about the rice. More oh, about the wok hay. That okay, too, okay. That too, that too. And, and okay. yeah. Oh, and another company that I really was interested in was, it's a plant protein company that's using mycelium to, to make meat alternatives. What exactly is mycelium? It's just mushroom. Oh, or like I a type see. Of so it's a plant protein company using mushrooms to create plant-based meat. Yeah. And okay. the and what reason is why I really called? like them. I just had it yesterday. I've been obsessed with them because some of the other plant-based protein companies, they all have soy and I'm allergic mm. to soy. Mm. I can't have most of them. So I wanted to go like full or at least partial vegan or vegetarian. But all of the plant-based options were just... Interesting. Um, Maybe there yeah. there is a gap in the market in terms of non-soy based plant-based yeah protein. for sure i mean like corn is is basically filling that up gap well for mm. me at least oh yeah. i wasn't i wasn't aware that there was no soy in, in corn at all yeah so in terms of gap in the market for alternative protein there's so much especially right now most of the plant-based meats they're basically minced alternatives right plant-based minced meat alternatives but i think the stat is 90 percent of all of the meat that is sold comes in the form of slabs of meat, like pork chops mm-hmm. or like lamb chops mm-hmm. and whatnot. But plant-based 
alternatives haven't really been able to replicate mm. that. I guess you do have patties and yeah, but that's just like a, another form of mince, mince, right? mince meat yeah. <laughs> compressed together. Yeah. Well, this recent company I've read about is called This T H I S, based in the UK, and they've been pioneering in the area of plant-based bacon as well mm. as some forms of pieces of chicken. So maybe that's something. That could offer an alternative, but but definitely, I feel like there's always, as long as it helps people to transition to eating more plant based, I think there's always you know a lot of opportunity to do that. For sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to say thank you so much, and really just acknowledge all the hard work you've put in in Rising and Patty, because I'm sure as a biomedical student, it's yeah. not easy to you know just go and start your own social enterprise without that business background, and I'm sure it was a difficult but satisfying journey and like just now with the story you told me about how the woman specifically came to find you just to say thank you I think that itself shows that you're affecting a lot of lives and are empowering a lot of people which is very inspiring and also I just wanted to give Lincoln a shout out as well he's also he's the second co-founder and even though the conversation I've had was with you I'm sure he also put equal amounts of hard work into my sink yeah thank you so much for having me Claudia and thank you so much for sharing our story and stories like ours and other sort of brands or companies that are doing good, basically a key part of their good is communicating that good. And, mm. and so what you play is sort of an important part in moving our world forward to a better future. So thank you for, for sharing thank our you. story collectively. No, no worries at all. It's definitely a story I think I, I'd love to share. So I'm glad, I'm glad you responded. I'm glad we did this. Thank you again for tuning in to Up To Some Good. I'm really happy that you're on this journey with me to learn about individuals and organizations who are giving back to our planet and our society. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on Apple. I also post content updates on our Instagram at up to underscore some good. And if there is a person in your life who you think will benefit from this episode, please share it with them. I always feel that sharing forms of inspiration and knowledge is a way of sending love, especially during COVID when it's difficult to see your loved ones in person. I think this is a really good way to connect and share inspiration. Also, if there is an inspiring individual who you think should be featured on Up To Some Good, please feel free to DM me on Instagram or send me an email via uptosomegood.podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to feature their story. In the meantime, stay healthy, do some good, and see you next time.